rest of you may be seated and take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We welcome those who are joining us online today. We trust that this service will be a blessing and that we'll see you soon here in the house. Matthew chapter 26. From the moment that we can talk, can think, we are questioned, we are prodded, we are educated about our purpose. People want to know what we know about our destiny, our call, our mission. From the time I was a little person, that, the first thing I remember is them saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always pick something I couldn't be. I wanted to be an Indian. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be a conductor. What do you want to do with your life? What, what are your plans for education, for family, for, for income? And, and, and it's important to the people that know you, love you, believe in you, to know that you have a plan for life, a desire to make your life count. People are curious about, about your plans and, and happy when they feel that you've reached that destination. But not too many of those people are involved in the, in the choices, in the, in the process part of you getting from where they ask you the question to when you arrive at their destination. And so today we're talking about destiny and process, about trust and surrender, about battling and sacrifice, talking about the things that it takes to get a win. We're 22 days away to process all that Jesus did for us on the way to the celebration of the Easter triumph. And we're going through the, the last days, the last weeks of Jesus' earthly ministry before his crucifixion. And we're, we're picking up a few of the, the difficult, the, the poignant phrases that Jesus speaks as he heads towards his meeting with destiny. He, the, the phrase that we're looking at today is this very expensive and complex phrase, not my will. Revelation tells us that from before the foundations of the world were laid, there was a plan for Jesus to lay down his life for the payment of sins. On the eighth day of the life of Jesus here on earth, he was taken to the temple by his parents and presented, given back to the purposes of God as the firstborn son and the prophet and the intercessor Simeon meets his parents and, and starts to speak prophetically over the boy. Jesus is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. Your son has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result of the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul by what happens to him, mother. At the age of 12, they've gathered in Jerusalem for the festival. And the family takes off, starts to head for home, and they get a few days down the road, and they decide that 
Jesus isn't with them and they start backtracking and find him in the temple and they asked why he wasn't traveling with the rest of the family. And his reply was, because I must be about my father's business, 12 years old. From the beginning of his ministry, he had a clear vision of, of who he was and why he had come. A few quotes. I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my will. I do nothing on my own but say only what the Father has taught me. Remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. There's not one moment in time that Jesus was unaware of who he was, of where he was headed, of what his mission was. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give my life a ransom for many. Our text this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 26. And we open that chapter and Jesus is telling his, his, his disciples in the second verse, I will be handed over to be crucified. He's already told them in chapter 16 and chapter 17 and chapter 20. And he'd very clearly said that, this, that his death is imminent. But here in the second verse, he said, in two days, I will be handed over to be crucified. He not only knew what was going to happen, he knew when it was going to happen. At that very moment, the leading priests and elders in Israel were meeting at a very important meeting at the high priest's home plotting how to capture Jesus and secretly kill him. They were thinking that they would have to wait 10 days until all of the pilgrims had, had, that had come from everywhere around the country for Passover had gone home. They were not wanting to cause a riot among the people who had gathered there because he was quite popular amongst them. But Jesus knew that the plan of God would unfold much more quickly than that, that it wouldn't be 10 days down the road, that it would be two days. Two days from now, I will be crucified. Everything in this chapter points to his death and to the fact that he knew what was happening and knew when it would be happening. Mary from Magdala comes to the home of, where, where there's a feast going on and takes expensive oil that cost her a year's wages and pours it over his head. And Jesus says, this is a sign. This is preparation for my burial. Judas goes and he sells his testimony to the enemies of Jesus. They're, they're building a legal case against Jesus. And Jude, Judas has said that he will not only hand Jesus over to them, but will further testify against him in court for 30 pieces of silver. John's gospel reports that Judas would do anything to gain money. Jesus says that at the Passover supper that is held in the upper room of a, of a friend's home, he says, Judas, I, I know what you're up to. I, and it's dangerous work that you've agreed to do. There will be a moment for you when you realize what you have done and you will wish that you had never been born. Everything that's taking place points to his death. The chapter is so full, so rich with information that we should take time to read, discuss, and, and, and study every word there. But I take you to verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. The Last Supper is over. 
They've walked out of the city of Jerusalem across the valley towards an olive orchard. On the way, Jesus has told the disciples that in the coming hours, each and every one of them will disown him, will reject him. They're shocked by that. Peter, Peter says, yes, the, these others, they're, they're cowards, but you need to know I won't leave you. Even if it means my own death, I will stick by you and be true to you. And Jesus just has to stop in the middle of the road and look him in the eye and say, Peter, yes, you too will deny me. Not once, not twice, but before the rooster announces the dawning of a new morning, you will have denied me three times. The olive grove that they go into is an enclosed grove that is called Gethsemane. Gethsemane translated means the oil press. Literally, there was a press that took the oil out of the olives right there in the, in the grove by, by pressure. And as I've been preparing for Easter, I, I find it interesting and fascinating that Jesus arranged, even for the locations that he visited, to speak to us about what was going on. In that place of pressure, that, that pressure was applied to fruit, Jesus would wrestle with an intense pressure that would attempt to keep him from his destiny. And in verse 36, they, they all arrive at the grove, and Jesus said to the group as a whole, stay here, I'm going ahead to pray. I, I can't emphasize enough to you, explicit from the example of Jesus, that if you're going to fulfill your destiny, if you're going to survive the battles, if you're going to survive the process that you will encounter on your way to your appointment with your God-given destiny, you have to be a person that's devoted to prayer. There are no alternatives. There are no options. There are no shortcuts. Jesus knows what the next 24, 36 hours hold for him. And his word is, in preparation for what's going to come my way, I go to pray over there. Prayer is essential. He, he, he takes three of the men with him. There is Peter and the two brothers, James and John. And he takes them to a place where he's going to pray. And he speaks to these three words of, of insight and, and, and understanding that there's, there's a powerful force at work that they may not see or be aware of. But he says to them, my soul is crushed with grief. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Gethsemane, a place where pressure is applied to destroy the body of an olive so that its valuable oil can be released. And, and Jesus says, I'm telling you that I'm in the press. My soul is being crushed with grief. In, in other places in the story of Jesus, that same Greek word is used. The, the word that is interpreted grief here is also translated as regret, anguish, distress, upset, and extreme sadness. Razor sharp emotions that are cutting him up and carving up in him up in the spirit. I, I, I'm crushed with grief to the place that I feel 
that I'm going to die. And, and he's not exaggerating. The, the weight of the responsibility, the violence that's been unleashed by hell on him at this moment, the understanding that because he's going to take on the sins of the world, that he would be separated from the heart of his father for the first time in all of history, of the history of eternity. Uh, it didn't just feel like he was being crushed by grief to the point that he would die. There, there was so much pressure, so much violence on him physically in that moment that Luke records that Jesus prayed so fervently and with such agony of spirit that when his sweat fell to the ground, it was filled with great drops of blood. It was mental Emotional, physical, spiritual pressure crushing him with grief. The, the instruction after he gives that report to the three men, the instruction that he gives to them is stay here, keep, keep watch with me. I, I'm alone, I'm fighting a battle where I could use your help. Stand with me, fight with me. Don't leave me alone in the battle. Stay close, keep watch, intercede and fight with me. Those who have sympathetic understanding to what's going on right now, come pray with me. Again, the, the example of Jesus is so clear, so powerful. We can't do this battle alone. We can't do it alone. If you have some picture that you're a spiritual lone ranger that, that can ride out the journey alone, you are claiming to be better than Jesus. He drew his closest friends into the most dramatic, powerful situation. Come, stay here, watch, pray, fight, battle with me. The, the enemy desires you to be alone. The enemy desires you to be isolated because that makes you vulnerable. That makes you accessible. That makes you easy pickings. But the plan of God is that we bear one another's burdens. The plan of God is that we belong to a family and count on them for strength, support, for help. To link arms together. Verse 39, Jesus goes a few steps further and he falls on the ground and he starts to call out on his father. We, we don't have the entire prayer, but we, we capture bits and pieces of the phrases of that prayer. Lines like, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. In, in scripture, cups are seen as, as how life is served up to us. Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. You give me a cup that's brimming and running over with blessing. We like those kinds of cups. We're happy to receive those kinds of cups. But there are other cups in, in Scripture as well. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. The Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of my wrath. Take it from my hand and cause all the nations whom I send you to, to drink it. That's a more difficult cup. Good cups, harsh cups. But Jesus says this cup of suffering, it's, it's too much. 
In a casual reading, it sounds like he's surprised, that he's afraid, that he's caught off guard by, by what is going on around him. And that's not the case at all. He knows his enemy. He, he, he has known the plan of God. He's been a part of the plan and has been part of planning since the beginning and has been and is a willing participant. However, this is a new phrase, this is a, a new phase, this is a new understanding of his ministry. He, he said that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a, a sacrifice. And the serving portion of his, of his life is, is done, it's complete. But now the more costly portion, the more sacrificial part of his ministry begins the giving of his life. And there's been opposition every step of the way from the time he was born till this very moment. But nothing comes close to the hatred, to the, to the violence that is being unleashed right now on his life. Next is the abandonment of the father in this, this time frame of his in just a matter of hours, Jesus will be on a cross. And I, I want to quote to you from the place of punishment that he's at. About the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me here? Why have you left me alone, left me helpless, forsaken, and failing me in my hour of need? He was aware that in that hour, in that, that time frame, he was estranged. He was separated completely from his God. The season for abandonment is part of the third reason for the cup he is being given is so bitter, so difficult. It's the connection that the perfect, the sinless son of God is going to have with sin. Paul states and says it this way, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we could be right with God. There's no simple, no accurate way to make that concept understandable. It's too much, it's... It's too difficult to comprehend. And, and anything that I try to do or, or use falls so short. But if, if we were to take one of the sweet, innocent little children of our house and make him or her serve the sentence for the crime of a, of a violent, cruel criminal, take that child away from the family that they're with and put them in solitary confinement, put them in a prison to suffer the cruelty of that kind of life so that the guilty person can be set free from the legal op uh, obligations of, of the crime. In a broken, imperfect way, that sort of scratches the surface of what's happening here. The sinless Son of God becomes sin. Christ, who had no sin, is now weighted down, is covered, is saturated in the slime of every sin that has been, will be, could ever be committed. 
and he has to bear the full punishment of that sin. He's assigned the responsibility to pay the full penalty that we ourselves owe. He takes it on himself. And in order for that to happen, God the Father has to distance himself from the contamination of that sin. So Jesus is all alone. Jesus is paying the price for sin that wasn't his, facing the hatred, facing the violence of hell and all of its force and power without the help, without the comfort, without the nearness of the Father. And to that, to all of that, Jesus says as if, if there's any other way, if there's another possibility, if this costly cup of wrath and suffering can be removed from me, then let it happen. This is too much. Many of you will remember when the movie The Passion of the Christ was released. I, I knew that I couldn't see it, but I had a man come to me and say that it was Hollywood overstatement. He said there's, there, there's no way that anyone could survive that kind of torturous treatment. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus didn't survive that treatment. Further, I believe that the physical violence that Jesus endured has never, can never, ever be duplicated. The full force of hell's hatred was unleashed. I also believe that the, the physical pain, as great as it was, was nothing in comparison to the spiritual, the mental effects of those hours. The, the Romans created death by the cross to be a humiliating, pain-filled, soul-crushing death. The worst death imaginable so that there would be no fear of the local people creating an uprising. It was a way of ensuring compliance to the Roman occupation. And the scriptures don't give too many of the, the ugly, gritty details of suffering because it's unimaginable. It's indescribable. We couldn't bear it. However, allow me to remind you that it all occurred because you need it, and I need it. I need that kind of help. And it all happened because we are loved. We're valued by God the Father. And he said, no price is too great to bring you back home. No price is too, too much so that we can be connected forever. But here's a key to unlocking destiny. If there's any way that we can do this differently, then take this specific cup away. However, I know who you are. You're my father. And you do all things well. And so I have complete trust. I have complete confidence in your plan. And so I refuse to go with my will that looks for another way. And I resign my rights and my freedom so that I can conform completely to your will. Not my will, but your will be done in my life. In my life. We follow the example of Jesus. 
You see, my will is not well informed. It's not exceptional. It's fed. It's fueled by my personal desires, by my fears, by my, my appetites, by my limited insight. And I must say and learn to say and to live this way. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I choose not to depend on my own will, on my own understanding. I daily go to God and seek his direction in every area of life, in every decision, in every circumstance, no matter how costly, how difficult it is. And because of those decisions and disciplines, I know that he will direct my path. I know that he will lead me to my destiny. I know he will will make my life count for good and for God. The fact of the matter is, God doesn't have a plan B. Jesus prophesied earlier in his ministry that he was the truth, the only truth. That he was the life, the only life. And that he was the way, the only way. To get to God. There is no other way for there to be peace made between sinful man and a holy God other than the shedding of blood, the the giving of a sinless life. So we continue to verse 40. The praying carries on for about 60 minutes until Jesus goes to the three men who had been asked to watch and pray with him. And when he returns to them, he finds them asleep. And he speaks to Peter, who who had pledged just moments before they got to the garden, had promised his support, his undying love and devotion, even to the point of laying down his life. And now here he is, having been asked to fight with me, to, to pray with me, now here he is asleep. And Jesus says, Peter... You couldn't even fight your way through the first hour. Where's the strength? Where's where's the resolve that you boasted of early this evening? Wake up! And he's not so much talking about him physically. He's saying spiritually, wake up! Wake up! It's vital that you keep watch. It's essential that you pray. If you do not stay vigilant here, then the outcome is inevitable. You will give in to temptation. Wake up. I've been very harsh and critical throughout my life of Peter, James, and John. Come on, guys. It's only an hour. Stay awake. Fight your way through. Don't let Jesus down. But, but I've come to an understanding. Obedience to the will of the Father is, is costly. Our, our enemy will fight in any way to keep a, a, a victory from being won through obedience. I, I believe that the atmosphere in the Olive Grove was so intense that the enemy had filled the air with so much tension, with so much confusion, with so much violence, that the easiest thing to do was not to fight. The, the, the easiest thing to do was to give in to the temptation, to, to submit to the exhaustion and the busyness that had consumed them over these last many days. The easiest thing to do was to go grab some sleep. 
It's never a good idea in the middle of a battle to give in to what is easy. When things get tough, don't quit ever. We must not get tired of doing good. We will receive our harvest of eternal life and blessing at the right time, but we must not give up. When meaningful relations are, are suffering from division and conflict and strife, don't walk away ever. When there's a shortage in what you have and what you need, don't stop sowing. Don't stop being generous. Don't eat the seed. Sow it. And when the battle is going on, do not, do not stop fighting and go to sleep. Get up and fight on. Jesus gives this insightful principle. Understand this. Stay in touch with your spirit, the spirit component of who you are. Don't be a slave to your body. Because the spirit is willing. It, it's eager to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. It's the body, the physical component of our life that seeks to find the easiest way out, the, the way of least resistance. Paul talks about physical discipline that doesn't surrender to what the body demands. He says, I run like someone who has a goal. I fight like a boxer who is hitting something, not just the air. It's my own body. I fight to make it do what I want it to do. I do this so I won't miss getting the prize myself after telling others about the prize. I bring my body into the discipline of obeying my spirit. I refuse to do what comes easiest with my body. I, I, I desire to do what my spirit is required to do in order to be obedient to the will of God. That's, that's brilliant. That's insightful. Wake up, watch, pray, so that, that you will not give in to the temptations that are trying to disqualify you from your destiny. Church, hear me. In this vital and important hour, wake up. Wake up. Verse 42, the, the battle is not resolved. It, it's not settled. Jesus goes back and he continues to struggle. The, the, there's no other way that this plan can succeed than if I drink this cup. And, and then I, I, I submit to your will. There's no rebellion in me. There's no question as to your competence, Father. I know you to be true, loving, reliable. And so I resign my desire and I come to you on your terms. I, I remind you that this isn't a petty feud. This isn't the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is a battle for worldwide dominion. Not just for an era, but for all time, for all people, for all nations. John writes, the devil has been sinning since the beginning of time. Anyone who continues to sin belongs to the devil. The Son of God came for this, to destroy the works of the enemy. Everything, everyone for all time is at stake in this battle. He didn't come to harass the devil. He, he didn't come to limit or partially disarm the devil. 
Jesus came to destroy the devil and his work so that, there would, so that we could belong to God, completely connected and related to God. This is massive. And Jesus comes back to the three men and he finds them asleep, maybe even in a deeper sleep. Listen to the text. They, the three men, could not keep their eyes open. More than tired, beyond exhausted, but overwhelmed by the temptation to not be involved in the fight and just go the way of least resistance. I'm going to let you in on a little secret of mine. I'm a prayer person who can easily become a sleeper. Most often when I pray, you'll find me on my feet and you'll find me walking so that I don't fall asleep. It's how I've learned to do my prayer battles. Walking and praying so that I don't fall asleep. I don't fall into the way of least resistance. Verse 44. He enters into the third segment of his prayer time. But Jesus doesn't fight to keep the men awake. He knows that they're powerless to pray at this moment. So Jesus struggles through alone. He struggles through until he's completely surrendered to the will of God. I submit to the plan that is in place. Your will is the best way to go. It's the only way to go. Your will be done in my life and in my living. My faith in you is steadfast, unmovable. My resolve is to believe that the Father will protect me no matter what is about to come at me. Like I mentioned a little earlier, I love that Luke in, in this part of the story mentions that at that moment an angel from heaven comes to help him, comes to add strength, comes to empower all that felt weak in Jesus. The truth of it all is there's no battle that I fight, that I can, that I can win in my own strength. The, the, the prophet of old said it best, it's not by my might, nor is it in my ability and my personal strength that battles are waged and won. It's by the strength that God sends through the power of the Holy Spirit that I can overcome. So when Jesus goes back to his disciples, he said, despite the warnings that I've given you and the promises that you've made, you, you, you've slept and you've not been prepared. So take your rest. You will not be what you said you wanted to be or be able to do what you promised to do. You will be rudely awakened in just moments from now when you, you run away, when you desert me, but at least you will be rested. But, but even the rest, that, that won't be enough. Look, the time is coming. Just as I have predicted and prophesied, the events that I've talked about, they have arrived. I'm about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Jesus is speaking to the men. He's not angry. He's not, he's not disappointed or disgusted by the men. He, he just knows that what's about to happen is going to be different than any of them had anticipated. And there is no reserve of strength. There's no supernatural wisdom attending them. There's no fight left inside of them. They will fall. They will run. They will hide. They will swear up and down that they have nothing to do with the one that they love. Tomorrow, they will suffer the shame and the embarrassment of their actions. But there's no resolve. There's no strength to keep them from them. Had they fought their way through in prayer, things would have been different. Had they listened with the intent to obey, they, they would have been prepared. They would have been equipped. But none of that is true now. And together and quickly, they will leave the one they love in his greatest moment of need. In verse 46, he does wake them up with the harsh reality check. Get up. Now's the time. That which I've said, that which I've promised is here. My betrayer has come. It's going to get really ugly, really real, right now. I, I've been reading and I've been studying and I've been preparing and I've been awakened by a few insights as I've been going through the story of Easter. The first thing that overwhelms me every, every time I open the book is the love that Jesus, that made Jesus come. The love that kept him from leaving the program before it was completed speaks to me of your value, of my value, of our value to the Father. You know, there really is no greater love than, than that of a man who willingly would lay down his life in order to save another person from death. I, I'm in wonder that, that a love that I can't understand, can't measure, can't fully comprehend or replicate in my own life has and was and is constantly aimed at me. Not because I'm good, not because I'm a deserving person, but because God is gracious and loving and he desires to connect with me. The, the, the love that desires a res, deserves a response, any response less then my complete surrender is ridiculously cheap and an unworthy answer. I'm going to ask for the keyboard to come. I recognize and I declare that we have been in the purposes of God brought to the kingdom for this time. While it's not required for us to die for the sins of mankind, that task was fully satisfied in the, in the sacrifice that Jesus made. We do have a call on our lives to in every way, every way available to us, to, to every person that God brings across our path, on every occasion that he provides, we are called to make the fullness of who Jesus is made known. I have many roles that lay claim to my life and to my time. But my primary purpose in life is to live in such a way that the world sees Jesus in me, sees 
my good works and looks to the source of my life and gives glory to the Father that lives in heaven. That may be bringing love and care and concern and compassion to to family that have been entrusted to my stewardship. It may be fighting through to make spiritual gifts that are sharp and, and effective so that I am willing to not only speak of the love of God, but ready to demonstrate the power of God that is absolutely unlimited. The picture that I've been having for the last few days is being so connected to that, that love that's in God that life, that power of God, that when he tells me to go to someone's tomb, a tomb that's holding a person or persons captive in its cold, icy grip, that with confidence and with authority, I can go to the mouth of that, that grave and I can call out the names of the captured and demand that they be returned to life, whatever the cost, whatever the effort. I have to be ready to do that. I have to be prepared not to go soft, not to go easy, not to, to follow the, the way of least resistance with my body, but to be ready to battle and fight until graves open and until captives come to life. Paul says, I discipline my body like an athlete disciplines his body, training it to do what it should do, training it to be a slave to my spirit and not a dictator to my spirit. Church, we are standing on the, the most powerful on, on the verge of the most powerful release of God's Holy Spirit. We're, we're standing at the, at the gate of a time where we will see things that we've all, not only prayed and believed for, but things that are beyond our understanding or our wildest imaginations and expectations. In the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out of my Spirit on all people. In the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the corruption, God will be at work doing things, fulfilling God-inspired dreams, completing ancient visions, speaking through men, speaking through women, young and old, confirming the word with signs and wonders, and all that call on the name of the Lord our God will be saved. We're on the verge of something big, and it has to be a church that knows how to follow the Spirit. The key is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, without reservation. To, to fight our way through to the place where we can say with conviction, with determination, not my will, but your will be done in my life. You are, by the plan and by the purpose of God, destined to be here and destined to carry God-sized, God-powered influence to your generation. The key word that we started to discuss last week is a word that is followed through this week. The word surrender. It's one of the most costly words on the planet. It, it, it isn't just expensive. It's encompassing, all-encompassing. Not what I want, not what I find comfortable, not what I find acceptable, but surrender to your will completely in every area of my life. I also want to take a, a phrase that we used last week and reuse it again this week, a phrase that is applied to and used by Jesus. Who do you say that I am? If we say that all that Jesus claims to be in Scripture is true, 
then nothing less than our full surrender to his call on our life is acceptable or effective. So again, this week, I've, I've been praying that you will personally fight the weakness of our own agenda, of our own desires, and go with the willingness of your spirit, that part of you that responds to, connects with, desires God. I, I pray, and I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry for that. I, I almost lied. I, I pray that you are so uncomfortable and that you remain so dissatisfied until you declare you are the son of the living God, the only answer for me and for my generation and for the world. I choose to live not my will, but surrender to your will completely. When you reach that point, I pray with all my heart that you will then stand before the Father and you will ask this question of him. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think? What do you see when you see my life? I ask you to do that because I desire that we wake up from our sleep and our slumber and we rise up to be the church, that we rise up to be the people, the life that God designed us to be. Man, I'm calling you. Wake up. Men, wake up to who God sees you to be. You're not spectators of history that's unfolding before your eyes. You've been declared by God to be more than conquerors. You are overcomers. You are the called. You carry the power. You carry the authority of the kingdom of Jesus on your life, on your work, on your ministry, on your influence. Wake up! I'm calling women to rise up and to prophesy like you've been told you will do, to, to move into the leaders of into the areas of leadership and influence that God has desired you to hold, to be people who change atmospheres, people who believe for the impossible to be made possible. Women, wake up. Be who you are designed to be. Be bold. Be compassionate. Be directed by the Spirit. I'm calling our youth, I'm calling our young adults not to settle for the stuff that doesn't last, but spend your life, spend all of your life building the kingdom. Declare with certainty that Jesus came not to bring religious rules or limitations, but to deliver life to the fullest measure possible. Young people, wake up. See, understand that you've been brought by God, by his plan, by his purpose. It's your destiny to be history makers. I stand this morning with a pastoral concern and a prophetic edge. I stand at the tomb where people are held captive. And with heaven-inspired authority, I call out, church, wake up. Church, wake up. Rise up. Shake off the complacency. Give up the ease that, of what your body desires and stoke your desires for the leading of the Spirit. Fear, you have no power. You have no authority here. Division and controversy, you're trespassing on holy ground. And you have no rights. You have no privileges here. 
There are the people of God and they have been bought with a price and serve the call of Almighty God to rise up and live the gospel in every nation and make disciples of people with the signs and the wonders exhibited in the life and ministry of Jesus flowing out of their life, flowing out of their ministry, flowing out of their influence, flowing out of everything that they say. Church, wake up. Come out. Rise up. Surrender to this truth and vision. Not my will, but your will be done. Right here, right now, till Jesus comes. Stand up with me. In the name of Jesus, put out your hands. In the name of Jesus, start to pray in your prayer language right now. In the name of Jesus. Resurrection power, be released in this house right now. Resurrection power, bring the dead back to life right now. Resurrection power, quicken hearts, quicken minds right now. Jesus, be revealed. Jesus, be revealed right here, right now. Be revealed right here, right now, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Father, I declare that you are Lord and you deserve nothing less than our whole life surrendered to you. You deserve nothing less than, than our complete surrender to your will and to your ways. Father, reveal to us that you're trustworthy. Reveal to us, make it known to the fears of our heart that there is no place for fear. That God, you are our strength. You are our, our strong and mighty tower. That you protect us. You look after us. You keep our ins and outs straight. You, you know everything about us and you are leading and guiding us in unbelievable ways. Father, today I speak to every part of us that's been wounded, damaged, and has died. And I declare right now in the name of Jesus, be awake. Come alive. Come alive right now. Father, let healing flow through our hearts, through our damaged emotions, through our disappointments, God, for, for, through the places where we've been left alone, through the places where we've been uh, abandoned by others. God, you have never left us. You've never abandoned us. And so I call for life to come, for people to discover that he is the way maker, for people to discover that he knows what he's doing, that he keeps his promises in the name of Jesus. Continue to pray in your spiritual language right now in the name of Jesus. Resurrection come. Resurrection come. Resurrection come right now. Right now. In this house. In this place. Where there is the word impossible, let it be broken and scattered to the winds. Where there's hardship, God, let your peace, let your mind come. In Jesus' name. Where there's division, God, let us be reconcilers. Let us not add stones to the wall that makes it higher, wider, harder to pass through. Let us be bridge builders, we pray in Jesus' name.